This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. One of the most significant parts of the financial crisis early on in the United States was the housing bubble. Banks were lending out money to purchase homes without consideration in many cases for whether the people could afford those payments. That allowed some people to qualify for a mortgage without putting any money in for a down payment. And when the bubble burst, millions of homes ended up in foreclosure. Various metropolitan areas around the country, places like Las Vegas and Modesto, California, and Fort Myers, Florida, found themselves in much tougher economic times. There was also the slowdown in new home building and the loss of construction jobs as well. To take a look at the impact on housing of housing on the financial crisis, we are joined here in studio by Benjamin Keyes, Assistant Professor in the Real Estate Department here at the Wharton School and a Faculty Research Fellow with the National Bureau of Economic Research. And joining us on the phone, Susan Wachter, who is a Professor of Real Estate and Finance here at the Wharton School. Ben, great seeing you again as always. Thanks for having me. Susan, great to have you back with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I mean, obviously, Susan, I'm laying out several elements here, but from your perspective, what were the decisions that that ultimately led to the housing bubble? Uh, Let's say the lack of decisions, the uh, response to the potential for expanding market share in the mortgage market uh, drove new players. We had a trillion dollars more of money coming into the mortgage market in 2004, 5, and 6. That's $3 trillion going into mortgages that did not exist before, non-traditional mortgages, uh, so-called um, uh, not, uh, nin- uh, ninja mortgages, no income, no job, no asset. Uh, these were by new players, and they were funded by private label mortgage-backed securities, which existed, but a very small niche part of the market, but expanded to more than 50% of the market at the peak in 2006. Ben? So I think on Susan's point, to just take a slightly broader step, I think a big theme related to this time period and one that we need to keep a close eye on right now is this trade-off between access and risk and thinking about thinking about lending lending standards in particular. So so Susan's highlighting this point of especially starting in two thousand late 2003 and then into 2004, 5, and 6, a huge explosion of lending. Um, at a time when interest rates had begun to rise, and a lot of people were expecting the end of uh, of the housing uh, the housing boom. So in two thousand three, um, interest rates start to 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 climb, and you see um, a lot of discussion about how this is going to be the end of the refinancing uh, boom, yeah. uh, which is a discussion we're having right now again as interest rates are starting to rise. Um, and at that point, people thought, well, this is when house prices are going to moderate. This is when house prices are going to sort of um, come back to, to reality because credit is, is not going to be flowing quite as generously and people are going to not be able to afford um, quite as much house given higher interest rates. And so what happens is a lot of lenders come in who are not traditional players in the market. They're funded by um, capital from sources that are not traditionally going towards mortgages, um, and they drive down the cost uh, of borrowing. And that increases access to, to credit, not necessarily only for low credit score folks, but for lots of folks, for investors yeah. Um, and for middle class folks who want to take out a second uh, a second lien or a home equity uh, line of credit, um, and and in doing so, um, create a lot of leverage in the system and, and introduce a lot more risk into the system. So I want to pinpoint something that Ben just said in a uh, uh, article that I've written in a book, which we are about to come out with with my uh, 
colleague, Adam Levitan, we actually point to that refi boom, that end of that refi boom, which was huge because after 2000 and the um, uh, potential of uh, stock market, uh, the stock market losses and the the fears about the year 2000. There was a huge expansion in the money supply. Interest rates fell dramatically, causing a refi boom, the like of which we hadn't seen before. That meant play, it was over in 2003. But that meant many players on Wall Street were sitting there with nothing to do. Aha! Here's the answer a new kind of mortgage-backed security, not one related to refi, but one related to expanding the mortgage lending box, and just as Ben said, not just to uh, uh, less qualified borrowers based on income down payment, but also to investors. The investor part of the story yeah. is underemphasized, but it's real. In fact, the, there's a false narrative here, which is that most of these loans went to lower-income folks that's not true. Well, and that's kind of the interesting piece of the story, Susan. I, I, I wanted to get the confirmation from you as well, because the, the narrative has been that you had a lot of people that were the blue-collar families and, and maybe the middle-class families that just got overextended. But you had a lot of people that did have a lot of money that ended up playing a role in this process. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the evidence that's out there is this was not a directed to lower moderate income event. This was an event for risk takers across the board, those who could and wanted to cash out later on. That was a big part of the 2006 and 2007 cash out. And also second uh, uh, borrowers were, were getting loans for second, third homes. These are not homeowners. These were investors. There was some fraud involved, putting down that you were an owner-occupant or simply uh, someone writing in what they assumed, which was often that, no, you were an investor, and you were taking advantage of what I, with another co-author, Andrei Pavlov, have identified as underpriced credit. That is, in our system, there's a put option. That is, you can walk away from your mortgage. Uh, these are basically uh, effectively non-recourse loans, so to speak. That is, you can walk away, which means that if you're an investor walking away, what you have no nothing at risk and what's the cost well if rates are going down which they were effectively and if down payment was going near zero as an investor you're making the money on the upside and the downside is not yours it's the banks the business side of it, uh, the business investors, Susan, did play uh, a big role in this. And we saw this, I think more so it became a story after the bubble kind of burst, is that you saw more and more investment properties popping up in locations around the United States. Yes. Now, that's that's another side. Now, in some sense, that's the solu that was a solution, because without that Wall Street step up to buy foreclosed properties and turn them from home ownership to rentership, we would have had a lot more downward pressure on prices, a lot of more empty homes out there selling for lower and lower prices, leading to a spiral down, which we were in 2009 with no end in sight. So this step in, unfortunately, to make homes available to people who were foreclosed upon and, and couldn't own, they'd had to rent. But actually, in some ways, it was important because it did put a floor under a spiral that was happening. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I want to I want to balance just uh, this view that um, you know that it wasn't just a subprime phenomenon and it wasn't just lending to lower score uh, borrowers with with the the fact that the the consequences of the bust 
uh, were much more strongly felt in in minority communities and minority households, um, in younger households, and in and in um, in lower credit score uh, households in many cases. And so, um, if you look at where prices fell fell the most, if you look at where um, the largest um, amounts of wealth were wiped out. Um, you know, the the home ownership rate um, fell most sharply in minority communities, and so I think it's important to balance the the fact that yes, this was a broad based um, phenomenon, and so this is sort of you know on the one side we're thinking about the the lending decisions, and we're thinking about the expansion of credit supply, which really did expand in any and all directions, right? Any yeah. direction where where there was appetite. Um, for anyone to, to borrow, and I think an important lesson from the crisis is that just because someone's willing to make you a, a loan doesn't mean that you should accept it. Um, but the the consequences of that of that collapse were definitely not evenly felt. So yeah, um, I'm going to disagree with you, Ben, a little bit on this. The problem is that the most vulnerable households to recession are minority and low income households. Mm-hmm. So the fact that after the recession of 2009, these were the households that were most hit is not evidence that these were the households that were most lent to proportionally. Uh, I have a paper with another co-author, Arthur Colin, which points to, uh, and Ralphie Bostic, uh, who, which points to the, um, looks at the increase in home ownership during the years 2003 to 2007, and uh, by, by minority area. And there is, there is, the increase was higher in majority area than the minority area. So again, the trope that this was lending to minority low-income households, it's just not in the data. Yep. I completely agree, Susan. The point I was trying to make was the, the point about the recession hitting the the minority oh, households absolutely. harder. After the fact. Um, after the fact. The recession, exactly. Sure. Exactly. So I was trying to distinguish between those two, but uh, but I completely agree with you. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the housing bubble and uh, what has happened to the housing uh, market and industry since. Joining us on the phone, Susan Wachter, the Wharton School, in studio with Benjamin Keyes here of the Wharton School, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Susan, then where are we right now where... Uh, you know, we're 10 years out. We still see a decent amount of, of rental properties out there. We have younger adults who've decided that it's better for them to rent than to actually buy a home. Uh, we've seen maybe a little bit of a turn on that particular piece to the puzzle in recent time. But are we still seeing a, a lot of these investment property owners carrying a lot of the weight of these properties even 10 years after the fact? Absolutely. It's uh, the rate of growth in the uh, transforming of the homeownership stock to the renter stock is slowed considerably. Uh, it's still there, but it's slowed considerably. So we're not in the heyday of 2011, 12, 13, 14. We're, we're in a, uh, in fact, slight uptick in the homeownership rate. However, we're still missing about 3 million homeowners who are renters. And you're, you're saying that uh, millennials have, prefer to rent than to own is not quite right. Rather, because if you look at surveys, there are still millennials and aspire to be homeowners. They simply can't get credit as one of the major outcomes, and understandably so, of the uh, Great Recession is that credit scores required for a mortgage have increased by about 100 points. So uh, if you're subprime today, you're not going to be able to get a mortgage. 
and many, many millennials, unfortunately, are in part because they may have taken down student debt. So it's just much more difficult to become a homeowner. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Between uh, between heavy burdens of student debt and, and really entering a job market during a difficult time for a lot of millennials, um, they're still not in the position in many cases uh, to be buyers. I think one um, you know, one myth about homeownership that um, that I regularly try to dispel in, in our conversations here is is the myth of 20% down, right? So you yeah. don't actually need a 20% down payment to, to buy a house. And a lot of borrowers, especially first-time borrowers, are using FHA programs where you're putting down 3%. Um, we have great programs for our, our, um, our veterans with the VA program, in many cases, a 0% uh, down payment. Um, but uh, so while down payments don't have to be large, they're really tight um, barriers to, to access and credit in terms of uh, credit scores and um, and having a consistent documentable income. Yeah. Um, and so those are really, um, you know, in talking about access and risk, the pendulum has really swung towards um, a very tight credit market um, that's loosened a bit in the last two years um, and is probably partly responsible for the uptick among millennials, but still quite tight relative to historical norms. I, I mentioned the geographical element to this in places like Las Vegas and Fort Myers and uh, and Modesto, which really saw an impact from this. Las Vegas was the one that seemingly was on the news almost every day. Uh, where are those cities right now in terms uh, uh, of the recovery 10 years after the fact? Obviously better, but are, are they in a much better overall perspective, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think the some of those markets are still suffering from uh, having quite a few borrowers who are underwater on their mortgages. And we think of the Great Recession as, as sort of... Um, you know, as being over um, for a lot of families. Um, yeah. But in, in some of these housing markets, there are people who are still underwater on their mortgage um, and people who continue to pay um, despite being underwater on their mortgage 10 years later. So, um, you know, in, in a lot of these markets uh, to this point that, that, that you were making and Susan was making about the shift um, to, uh, to single family rentals um, and that taking pressure off of of prices, even in in these markets where you've seen the, the biggest shifts, the Phoenixes and the and the Las Vegases, um, you still are seeing a, a relatively depressed housing market uh, overall, and that's um, you know I think it's for in a lot of those cases it's really just a function of time that's going to um, lead to a recovery in those markets, especially with uh, with the economy improving overall. Susan. Yes, I agree entirely with Ben. The um, overall housing prices have come back, even adjusted for inflation, just about for the United States as a whole. But in many markets, they have not. It's in a different place. So the comeback is not where the crisis was concentrated. Often the crisis is concentrated in far-out suburbs, like Riverside uh, in, uh, in California. These were the drive-to-qualify suburbs. But now the demand is... Uh, concentrate the growth and demand in cities where the jobs are. And, and are we having even a little bit of that separation? We talk about the income inequality in this in this country at times, Susan. Are we having that even a little bit in the housing market because of some of the places that are, that are here in the United States, the towns where the prices have skyrocketed so much in, in the last couple of years in comparison to you know just availability, as you said, people sometimes need to have a, a location in a city because that's where their job is. There's no question that the overall inequality in wealth and income is being um, is being exacerbated by trends in the housing markets, where housing prices are going up, where they're already high in growth cities like New York, Washington, San Francisco. 
where there is a inequality to begin with of uh, hollowed out middle class, low income, and high income, where low income are renters, and they're facing high, not just higher housing prices, so hard to get into the housing market, but also higher rents, so hard to save for the house. Ben? Yeah, I mean, the higher rents, I think, is is really a challenge. Susan, you just touched on it, that, that um, you know, this shift of um, of borrowers who, who can't uh, qualify for a mortgage, those 3 million missing homeowners that... Yep. Uh, uh, that Susan mentioned, those are three million extra renters, and so they are pushing up prices um, on um, on rental properties in the U.S. and and that's um, that's making it more unaffordable. And so you, you think about the folks who are who are working in the service sector in cities like New York City and San Francisco, where uh, where prices are so extraordinarily high. Um, again, you are going to have to to really commute uh, a long ways outside of the city if if you're going to work. Um, you know, work in downtown San Francisco and, and find something that's affordable for, for a lot of service sector service sector jobs. Susan, how confident do you think that the house building sector is right now, the builders across America, about continuing to put out a significant amount of, uh, of, of new properties? And that being said, that obviously plays into one of the things I mentioned earlier about the jobs, the construction jobs that are involved in this, because the more they want to build, the more people they're going to need to, to put these houses up. Yeah, the uh, house builders are being squeezed on two sides. Uh, they produce at the high end. It's, uh, most production of new homes is at the high end, understandably so, because that's, it's costly to, to build. Yeah. And uh, housing prices have gone up an extraordinary amount on the new housing front. And there, at this point, there's some pressure, downward pressure, simply because uh, buyers are, are, are not buying at these extremely high prices. So the buying demand actually just recently has slowed down, which is why production has slowed down. On the other end, builders are facing higher costs for wages, higher costs for materials, and higher costs for land, particularly where the demand is. So we still aren't back to construction levels that we were at prior to the, to the crisis. Not to say that construction isn't higher than it was. It is. It's back, but it's not at the levels that it was. Ben? Uh, yeah, I think this is an area, just to, to piggyback on, on Susan's point, this is an area where, where government policy is really important. I mean, she mentioned very quickly um, higher labor costs, but that's partly a function of immigration policy. She mentioned yep. higher materials costs, and that's a function of tariff policy in, in some of these cases. And I think, um, you know, there's a real role for, for government policy. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see as this refi wave um, sort of uh, ebbs, um, and much like the 2002-2003 period, which was really critical um, in thinking about, you know, what role did the government play in keeping an eye on on the the behavior of of lenders and the behavior of you know yeah. risk taking. Um, there's a real role for for the government, not only in those areas I mentioned before, immigration and, and tariffs, but also thinking about credit policy and thinking about banking regulation and thinking about non-bank regulation. These kinds of players who are sort of outside the scope of traditional regulatory purview. Um, so I think there's a really interesting government angle here, too. What's going to be the the, the, the path moving forward, Susan, for the lending industry uh, with uh, with all of the renters out there? And obviously, uh, as you mentioned, the, uh, the the somewhat concerns that the, the building industry uh, has in terms of times of, of putting new properties up. Well, right now, housing prices and rents continue to rise. They're slow, slowing down, decelerating, but they're continuing to rise because of the cost pressures. And I think that that's going to continue. What could break it, unfortunately, is a recession or a rise in interest rates that 
perhaps leads to a recession along with other factors. So that's when we'll see that happen. And folks are saying maybe in 2020, uh, recession uh, likelihood is, is, is possible. So that would break that side of it. On the lending side, uh, right now, uh, there is oversight. There isn't uh, uh, the, the um, non-traditional lenders in the residential space are basically missing in action. But, of course, uh, it does depend on the future of regulation and specifically depends on the future of the uh, government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, which are due to be reformed, but they've been due to be reformed for 10 years now. Yeah, but from what, what I read recently, Fannie and Freddie have, have been a pretty good entity for the federal government over the last few years as well, correct? Correct. Actually, they're making money for the federal government right now, and they are part of a stable lending pattern right now. Uh, but the taxpayer is 100% at risk. So where do we go? Ben, are we safer from a housing bubble in the future? Relative to 2006 or 2007? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but that, you know, And again, this is that extra trillion dollars of lending sloshing around that, that yeah. Susan referenced earlier. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have a lot of people who first-time homebuyers putting 3% down. Um, doesn't take a big downturn to to hurt them. Um, in terms of the ripple effects, I think it's much more, you know, the risk is much more concentrated in the government at the moment between the FHA and, and Fannie and Freddie. Um, and so you don't have the same sort of financialization. You don't have the um, the CDOs um, and the sort of the broader bets that were being placed on the housing market. So that is um, less of a concern in terms of it propagating to a lot of other sectors. And I think as um, the folks you had on earlier were talking about how the, the banking sector is quite a bit safer and, and being subjected to stress tests. So I think there's certainly uh, you know plenty of opportunity for house prices to fall in a lot of U.S. markets. And um, and a lot of homeowners uh, don't have a huge amount of equity in their homes, especially the recent buyers. Great having you both with us, Susan. Thank you for your time today. All the best. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Ben, great seeing you. Thank you very yeah, much. Greatly thanks. appreciate it. Susan Wachter and Benjamin Keyes from here at the Wharton School talking about uh, the real estate market and where we are headed in the future. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.